being that calculus is a massive field with a significant amount of information, the concept that we will be discussing throughout these episodes will be, or really calculus itself, will be divided into two episodes, where the first deals with the history of calculus, the formal definition of calculus, functions in calculus, and limits in calculus, and where in this episode we discuss derivatives, integrals, and differential equation. Anyway, welcome back to the two-part episode on calculus. And as I said earlier, we will be learning about integrals, derivatives, derivatives, integrals, and differential equations. In algebra, we all likely learned how to find the slope of a line. We learned that to find the slope of a line, we needed to find the change or delta in y, so delta y, over the change in x, delta x. We could also evaluate the slope of a line based upon the variable's coefficient. For example, we know that the slope of a function f of x equals 7x plus 4 is 7, for x's coefficient is 7. If you want to test it out, we can test it out with x values of 4 and 7, since the arbitrary pattern. It's probably easier to sense the pattern that I'm talking about. I'm, I kind of am alluding to something with the 4 to 7 values. Um, but anyway, the change in y in this interval would be 21, and the change in x would be 3. Thus, the slope of the function f of x is 7. That's just one example. You could do it from 13 to 16, for example. I'm not going to evaluate that, but I'm pretty sure we know. Like, 192 plus 4 equals 196. 16 times 7 is 16 times 7, 192. I don't... It actually might not. It definitely is not. 16 times 7 is definitely not 192. That's 16 times 12. Um, it would be, that would be 1, 112? Yeah, 112. Okay, that, that doesn't matter. <laughs> um, unfortunately though, unlike linear functions, we cannot evaluate the slope of a curve with the delta y over delta x in that very simple way. Technically, we still can. We can find the slope of the secant line, so between two points, but we can't necessarily find the slope of a tangent line with that particular example. We can't find it that way. So we must basically get rid of, stop worrying about universal slopes and rather find universal slope functions. That's a better word, better term for it. So we try to figure out something known as instantaneous change. So delta y over delta x at a very specific point. So at x equals 4 in the arbitrary function f of x. Formally, the derivative is defined as the instantaneous rate of change in a curved slope. So for example, at x equals c, well this is more of a formal example, at, at x equals c in the nonlinear function f of x, the derivative would be the slope of the line tangent to the point c f of c. A tangent line is linear, thus we have an actual slope at a particular point, and thus we have the derivative of f of x at x equals c, which is represented by f prime, or f apostrophe, I like to say, of c, so f prime of c. Two lines you may hear of, and you already heard from me, and you will hear from me later in this episode and throughout probably the rest of your mathematical life are the tangent line and the secant line. The secant line joins two points on a curve to form a general slope. 
whereas the tangent line connects with one point to give a rate of instantaneous change or slope at a particular point in a curve. In a nonlinear function, in a linear function, actually, in a linear function, the tangent lines and the secant lines are the same. But in a nonlinear function, in a curved function, in a curve, f of x equals x squared, for example, the secant line between negative 2 and 2, when x equals negative 2 and x equals 2, is not the same as the secant line at x equals negative, or as the tangent line at x equals negative 2 and the tangent line at x equals 2. Now we can actually evaluate it. The derivative with respect to x of x squared is 2x. 2 times 2 equals 4, and 2 times negative 2 equals negative 4. So the derivative at negative 2, x equals negative 2, is negative 4. Thus, that means that it's going down negative 4. It's going down 4. If you were to sketch a tangent line, you would get that the function is going down 4 for every one right unit. This is a linear tangent line, though. This is instantaneous. And if x equals 2, it'd be 2 times 2, which equals 4. And that would mean that you would be going 4 up for every 1 to the right. For every 1 increase in x values, you go up 4 in y values, and that is the tangent line. But the secant line, on the other hand, is 0, because you are getting the slope between 2, and it's, it's going to be... It's going to be 4, because x squared equals 4. Uh, it's going to be 4 minus 4 over 4, which is 0 over 4, which is 0. But yeah, that's basically the difference between a tangent line and a secant line. And it, it's very important in curved nonlinear functions. Let's just say it that way. Derivatives follow what seem to be very specific formulae. There exist many rules and standards in, in derivation, not deviation, that help one obtain the derivatives of functions. These include the general basic guidelines to derivatives. It includes addition, subtraction, and multiplication by a constant. Uh, I like to call it the constant rule, which basically a constant rule that is not like the constant rule in that the constant is not multiplied into the derivative into a function, um, and other things of course. There's also the power rule, the product rule, the quotient rule, the chain rule, and the derivatives of trigonometric functions because that's a completely different thing. But you can figure them out using all of the main rules, specifically, in my opinion, specifically the quotient rule. Now you can find the trigonometric functions of sine and cosine. You kind of have to graph it to figure it out, but it's definitely something you can do. It's possible. But the big thing is that the basically all of the other four trigonometric functions are determined by using the quotient rule. So that obviously that's pretty important, but we don't really use the quotient rule. Normally we just go chain rule, product rule instead of chain rule, quotient rule, or yeah. Normally we would go like chain rule, product rule, or product rule, because the quotient rule is not fun. It, it's it's not difficult. It's not difficult. It's just tedious. Because it's different. It's a lot different from the other ones. It's even different from the chain rule. But anyway, suppose we have the function f of x equals 4 times all of this, x squared plus 14x minus 17. So 4 is multiplied into all of that. Now, technically, we could apply 4 to all of this, but the basically, the if we were to derive this, find the derivative of this, we could just basically 
take the constant and put it outside of the derivative operator. So you'd be multiplying 4 times the function of all of, of that, uh, times f prime of x. That's basically what's happening. So let's say that we are attempting to differentiate x squared plus 4, 14x minus 17, all of that multiplied by 4, at x equals 3. The rules of derivatives, as I said, allow us to take the constant that applies to the entire set outside of the derivative itself, as long as it is being multiplied, of course. Thus, actually technically even divided. Thus, when we apply the derivative operator, our equation becomes four, four times the derivative with respect to x of x squared plus 14x minus 17. Now we also have two variables that are being added together and a constant that is being subtracted from the value. In terms of the addition and subtraction of terms in a function, the derivative operator can be applied to all of them separately. Thus, we are basically finding the derivative of x squared 14x and negative 17 separately. Formally, this would be 4 times the derivative with respect to x of x squared plus the derivative with respect to x of 14x minus the derivative with respect to x of 17. And of course, we are multiplying all of that by 4 as I said 4 times the derivative with respect to x of x squared, but it applies to all of it. Now using the power rule, which will be discussed literally right after this equation is answered, we get that the general derivative for the two terms containing the variable x is 4 times 2x plus 14. So 4 applied and multiplied into 2x and 14. But forget not that there also exists a negative 17 that applies to f of x. This leads us to yet another rule of derivatives. The derivative of any constant is zero. Think about it, a constant is a straight line on a graph, thus it never has a slope greater than or less than zero. It is only ever zero, and thus its derivative is zero. As a result, our general derivative function is f prime of x equals 8x plus 56. Thus, the derivative with respect to x of f of x at x equals 3 would be uh, 3 times 8, which is 24, plus 56 is 80. So, it would be 80. There you go. The next one is a power rule. As, as was seen with the function that we talked about, x squared, for example, x squared was multiplied into 2x, or was derived into 2x, not multiplied. As was seen with that particular function that represented the basic derivative rules, we applied what was known as the power rule to both the terms x squared and 14x. Most without a background in calculus would probably have absolutely no idea what I'm talking about. So, of course, it is important that we discuss it. The power rule deals with quite literally everything with variables. Let's imagine, for example, the function f of x equals x to the 11th power plus 3x cubed plus 2x plus 4. If we are to find the derivative of f of x, it is important that we understand the power rule. Abstractly, the power rule tells us that when we have a function f of x, where f of x equals a to the nth power, f prime of x, or the derivative of f of x, uh, a is a variable, not a constant, by the way. The derivative of f of x would be f prime of x equals n, which is which was a to the nth power. So you'd be multiplying n into a. So that would be another that would be multiplying by the coefficient. Let's say that a's coefficient is one. Thus, thus it would be one times n, and that would be n. So it'd be n times a to the power of n minus one. So you'll be subtracting from the original power, so if the power were 4, you'd be subtracting 1 from that, which is, of course, 3. 
the power rule tells us that the degree to which the variable is being raised will be multiplied by the coefficient of the term. And one, one will be subtracted from the degree of the term, thus giving us the derivative of a to the power of n. Now let's derive f of x, which we said to be x to the 11th power plus 3x cubed plus 2x plus 4. Using the power rule, we find that the derivative of x to the 11th power is 11x to the 10th power. Do you see how I multiplied that 11, that x to the 11th, the 11, into the coefficient, which was originally 1, to make it 11, and then I subtracted 1 from 11, which was the power, and that is now 10, so we get 11x to the 10th power. The derivative of 3x to the third power is 9x squared, because we're multiplying that 3 into the coefficient, which here is 3, and thus we get 9x squared. And the derivative of 2x is 2. Now, 2x to the 0th power, think about it. That's, that's basically what you're doing. You're subtracting, you're multiplying it by 1 because it's to the 1th power, the first power. And you are subtracting 1 from that, which is 0. x to anything, x to the 0th, anything to the 0th power is 1. So 2 times 1 equals 2. And the derivative of 4, of course, a constant is 0. Thus, f prime of x equals 11x to the 10th power plus 9x squared plus 2. Or the derivative with respect to x of f of x is 11x to the 10th power plus 9x squared plus 2. Now, I'm going to say one quick disclaimer, I guess. This is only really getting into the absolute basics. Like, we have not even, we have not even really discussed, like, multiple variable functions, for example, like xy equals 16. You can very easily derive that using implicit differentiation, but we can't get into implicit differentiation. So, of course, as I hope I say as many times as possible, go on to Khan Academy and see if you can figure out some of that stuff on your own, and of course, watch those videos, because they're very, very, very insightful, and I think you can gain a lot of knowledge just by knowing calculus. Calculus brings about a lot, let's just say it that way. It's even useful in business. Now, next we go to the product rule. The product rule is the less difficult version of the quotient rule, let's just say it that way. We are given the function f of x equals x minus 3 times x plus 3, where both are, where x minus 3 is in parentheses and x plus 3 is in parentheses. Now this is very obviously a difference of squares, x squared minus 9. So you technically could say, oh yeah, this is 2x, by just simply foiling it. But I'm not going to foil it. We are asked not to foil it. We cannot foil it, so it will not be x squared minus 9. Because of the fact that we cannot foil this function in order to find its derivative, we must incorporate another rule. Although, of course, we will foil to check our answer, because why not? And this is the product rule. Formally, if we are to take the derivative of f and g, where the function is h of x equals f of x times g of x, the product rule tells us that we can figure out the derivative of h of x through this method. It would be h prime of x would equal f prime of x times g of x plus g prime of x times f of x. These terms are, of course, multiplied by one another. They are not separate functions being added together. Essentially, we are finding the derivative of the first term, multiplying it by the second term, and to that we add the derivative of the second term multiplied by the first term. Incorporating this into the function f of x equals x minus 3 times x plus 3, we find that the derivative with respect to x 
of both of these parenthesized terms is 1. Thus, the product rule tells us that we will now be adding x minus 3 to x plus 3, which is literally just 2x, because 3 minus 3 is 0, and x plus x equals 2x. Thus, f prime of x equals 2x. If we FOIL f of x, we get f of x equals x squared minus 9, which, using the power rule, simplifies to f prime of x equals 2x. Thus, the two derivative rules coincide with one another. It is, of course, important to do that, because this is pretty important to make sure that they actually can coincide with one another. But anyway, now we're going to go to the product rule, or quotient rule. Suppose we have the function f of x equals x plus 9 divided by x squared, with x plus 9 being in the numerator and x squared in the denominator. And we are asked not to flip x squared into x to the negative second power and use the product rule. Once we get to the chain rule, you may see why people often skip the quotient rule. People hate the quotient rule. I don't like the quotient rule either. I, I use it the least out of everything. I don't even really use the product rule that much. It's really the chain rule and just basic derivative rules. But anyway, imagine the function f of x or h of x equals g over f. The quotient rule tells us that the derivative with respect to x of h of x would be the derivative of the numerator times the base, which is the original without derivative base denominator, subtracted by the derivative of the denominator times the base numerator. The value for this is later divided by the square of the base denominator. Notationally, this is h prime of x equals g prime times f minus h prime or f prime times g divided by f squared. Using the quotient rule, we can now determine that the numerator of the derivative with respect to x of f of x is the derivative of x plus 9 times x squared, which is just x squared because the derivative of x plus 9 is 1, subtracted by the derivative of x squared times x plus 9, which if we use the power rule is 2x times x plus 9. Thus our numerator is x squared minus 2x squared plus 18x, which is negative x squared plus 18x, by the way. Forget not that we must square the denominator as well, thus the denominator will be x to the fourth power. As a result, the derivative with respect to x of f of x is f prime of x equals negative x squared plus 18x over x to the fourth power. As I said, x squared minus 2x squared is negative x squared. Which, if you want to be very specific, can be simplified to f prime of x equals negative x plus 18 over x cubed, or negative x plus 18 times x to the negative third power. And of course, the GCF, we figured this out because the GCF is x, thus an x can be taken out of the fraction. Now the last one is the chain rule, before we go into the derivatives of trigonometric functions. Suppose we have the function f of x equals x minus 4 to the 6th power. This function is a composite function, meaning that if we separated f of x into two functions, g of x equals x minus 4, and h of x equals x to the 6th power, h of x is the function of g of x. It would be, if I don't have this wrong, it would be h of g of x. <laughs> I've always gotten that wrong throughout my entire career in math. I've always gotten those mixed up, but it is 
likely h of g of x. But yeah, so when we have a function such as f of x equals x minus 4 to the 6th power, the product rule does not apply. Now it technically does, but it is way too complex. We're not finding x minus 4 to the 6th power, because that's x minus 4 times 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 x minus 4. I'm not doing that. So we're going to use a less complex method. This method is known as the chain rule. So let's say that the function c of x, composite of x, equals f of g of x, or c of x equals f of g of x. That's just two different notations for the document. Now to find the derivative of c of x, we must apply the chain rule. The chain rule tells us that for this particular function, composite of x or c of x, we will multiply the derivative of f of x by the base g of x, and we will multiply all of that by the derivative of g of x. Thus, the derivative with respect to x of c of x is c prime of x equals f prime of g of x times g prime of x. And I found out that I did actually get that composite function correct. Outside is going to be the outside of the function, outside of the function function, and yeah. So let's just apply it to x minus 4 to the 6th power. Now, of course, the outer function is x to the 6th power. So we, of course we're going to find the derivative of x to the 6th power. So imagine the 6th degree on the outside of the parentheses to be x to the 6th power, which is 6x to the 5th power, times x minus 4. So this would be 6. It would be 6 times x minus 4. Because remember, we are applying this. This is a composite function. So you can't just be 6x times x minus 4. It's actually 6 of x minus 4. x in this situation, if you were to have x to the 6th power, you get 6x to the 5th power, but x in this situation is x minus 4 because you're applying it as a composite function. Thus, it would be 6 times x minus 4 to the 5th power, which is then multiplied by the derivative of x minus 4, which is simply 1. Thus, the derivative with respect to x of the function f of x is f prime of x equals 6 times x minus 4 to the fifth power. The chain rule was difficult, somewhat difficult for me to understand at first, that an implicit differentiation, but the thing is, once you get used to it, it is very easy. A lot of it is memorizing formula, formulae, and sometimes I can kind of blank, and I also don't watch the videos. <laughs> so I made a mistake, I guess. I, I definitely made some mistakes in that I didn't watch the videos. I'm going back to watch them because it's pretty important that you do. Now, now that we've discussed the basic rules of derivatives, let's find the derivatives of trigonometric functions. We're not going to get into the derivatives of the logarithms and other properties of derivatives, but we will get into the derivatives of the trigonometric functions. The derivative of sine of x is cosine of x. This is obvious on a graph, but it is not obvious in algebra. We're just going to say that the derivative, so the d with the derivative with respect to x of sine of x follows and essentially is the graph of cosine of x. The derivative of cosine of x is negative sine of x for the derivative of cosine of x is the inverse of the graph of sine of x. The derivative of tan of x is a little more and more complicated, a little bit more complicated. It requires that we use the quotient rule. As tan of x equals sine of x over cosine of x, 
we can apply the quotient rule. Using the quotient rule, we get the derivative with respect to x of tan of x equals cosine x times cosine x, which is cosine squared of x, plus sine of x times sine of x, which is sine squared of x, divided by cosine squared of x. Simplifying this bulky derivative, we get that the derivative with respect to x of tan of x cosine or tan of x equals cosine squared plus sine squared, which is a trigonometric identity, which is a Pythagorean identity exactly, divided by cosine squared of x. And cosine squared of x plus sine squared of x is literally the same thing as x squared plus y squared. Thus we get one. So this would be one over cosine squared x, which is the same thing as secant squared x. As a result, the derivative with respect to x of tan of x is secant squared of x. Now the derivative of cotangent of x, or the almost the inverse, kind of, not really, the um, one over the reciprocal of tangent, that's more like it, can also be derived using the chain rule, or the quotient rule. All of them are going to be derived using the quotient rule, all of them from here on out. As cotangent of x equals cosine of x divided by sine of x, we can use the fraction, quote-unquote, function to derive cotangent of x. Using the quotient rule, we get the derivative with respect to x of cotangent of x equals negative sine of x times sine of x, which is negative sine squared x, minus cosine x times cosine x, which is cosine squared of x, or negative cosine squared of x, divided by sine squared of x. This simplifies through simple properties of multiplication to negative sine x squared minus cosine x squared divided by sine x squared. Let's extract the negative, or sine squared of x. Let's extract the negative from the numerator, and as a result, we get sine squared of x plus cosine squared of x over negative sine squared of x, which is the same thing, using Pythagorean identities, as 1 over negative sine squared x. Thus, the derivative of cotangent of x with respect to x is negative cosecant squared of x, because 1 over sine of x is cosecant of x. To find the derivative of cosecant of x, let's apply the quotient rule again. As cosecant of x is equivalent to 1 over sine x, we can use the quotient rule, of course. And applying the quotient rule, we get that the derivative with respect to x of cosecant of x equals negative cosine of x over sine squared of x. If we simplify, we find a negative cosine over sine, which is negative cotangent. And then we also find a 1 over sine, which is cosecant. Thus, our derivative with respect to x of cosecant of x is negative cotangent times cosecant of x. So negative cotangent x, cosecant of x. For the fourth time, we will apply the quotient rule to obtain a derivative, this time of secant of x. As secant of x is equivalent to 1 over cosine of x, we will use the quotient rule. Applying the quotient rule, we get that the derivative of x of the derivative of secant of x with respect to x is sine squared or sine of x over cosine squared of x, which simplifies to tan of x times secant of x because sine over cosine is tan, and then you have an extra one over cosine, which is secant. So yeah, that's so the derivative of secant of x is tan of x times secant of x. Even all of these derivatives merely scratch the surface of derivation. And as I've said before, I ask all of you to go on to Khan Academy and try out der derivation, for it is such an invigorating top topic. Now we still have two more things to go. This has already been 27 minutes long. 
I have I don't think I'll ever create I don't think I've ever created an episode this long before because this will be a very long episode. I think this will probably be more like 40 to 45 minutes long. The integral, it is the second of the three things we'll be discussing today. It evaluates the accumulation of change and describes processes such as displacement, area, and volume. The integral is the fundamental operation of one of the two fundamental branches of calculus. That is integral calculus it is integral calculus and it's one of the two major branches which are integral calculus and differential calculus of course is integral calculus obviously the integral is the fundamental operation of integral calculus the process of finding integrals is known as integration there exists more than two types of integrals but the two fundamental integrals will be discussed in this chapter there exists the definite and the indefinite integral there also exists the contour and line integral but this is a more advanced integral that will not be discussed in this chapter. Even so, I've left a link in the bibliography that describes this operation. And I probably will be doing an episode on advanced calculus, multivariable calculus, in a few months. Because I'm going to be doing Calc 3 in probably about three weeks. So, chances are I'll probably be involved with it pretty soon. It'll probably be a pretty big part of my life soon so i'll be definitely doing stuff like partial derivatives for example they're very stupid easy but we can learn about those because those are pretty simple but you have to have a very strong calculus background that's one of the biggest things because it's all about derivatives but anyway um the definite integral describes the accumulation of change over a definite interval whereas the indefinite integral obviously describes the accumulation of change over an indefinite inter interval or infinite interval to find the integral of something, we must find what is known as its antiderivative. There are a few major tricks to finding the antiderivative of a function, but a major rule is that there always must be an arbitrary constant, often represented by a capital C, associated with the answer to an indefinite integral. And we'll use that in differential equations. And in indefinite integrals yield functions, not values, thus an arbitrary constant must be added to the expression. That is, unless one can find the constant through other context clues. The two major tricks are the reverse power rule and the reverse chain rule, aka integration by substitution, otherwise known as U substitution. The reverse power rule is relatively simple. It's basically the literally the reverse of the power rule. It, it is literally the exact reverse of the power rule, basically. We know from differentiation that the derivative with respect to x of a, where a is a variable, to the power of n equals n times a to the nth power minus 1, or times the n minus 1 power. In terms of integration, the power rule is basically opposite. It's a reverse power rule. Suppose we have the function n times a to the n minus 1 power. To find the antiderivative of this function, we must add 1 to the power, so it would be a to the n instead of a to the n minus 1, so you'd add 1 to negative 1, and negative 1 plus 1 is 0. And we must divide the coefficient by the power. The power, and this is the power after we integrated the power, not before. So you start with the power, and then you go to the coefficient. Thus, the integral of n times a to the power of n minus 1 times dx, or of dx, equals a to the n over n plus c. a to the nth power over n plus c. Now, plus c is, of course, the arbitrary constant. But in a more specific example, let's say that we are given the integral, the, the 
indefinite integral of 3x squared. If we apply the reverse power rule, we are given that the antiderivative of 3x squared is x cubed. Thus, the, or the integral or the antiderivative of 3x squared dx equals x cubed plus c. And of course, we must not forget the constant c. Suppose we are asked to take the integral or antiderivative of f of x equals 4 equals 4 times 6x squared minus 5 to the third power, times 12x. If you know derivatives fairly well, you may see that the term, you may see that term 12x is the derivative of 6x squared, because 6x squared, the derivative of 6x squared is 12x, and the derivative of negative 5 is 0, meaning that this function is the output of the chain rule. Because of this, we can apply the reverse chain rule. We can actually apply it for a lot of other things, too also known as integration by substitution, to the integrand, or the, in, the function with which we plan to take the antiderivative. We know from f of x that if this equation were the derivative of something, 6x squared minus 5 would exist in the original function. Thus, when we are able to do substitution, we can substitute a random letter, often u, into the equation. If we make 6x squared minus 5 u, then we can evaluate the derivative of u. The derivative of u is the derivative of u with respect to x of u, where du over dx, so the derivative of u with respect to x, equals 12x. And we can multiply away the dx to get du equals 12x dx. Now, technically, technically the derivative operator is not a fraction, but it can be used to be a fraction. Yeah, and you'll see why one reason why we do it in differentiation or in differential equations. Those are very, those are combinations of the two major concepts in calculus, major branches of calculus. And you'll see why we need to almost multiply it into the other side. So our original indefinite integral is the integral of four times six x squared minus five to the third power times twelve x dx. As we can see, the 12x dx is in the integral. We can substitute du, which equals 12x dx, with 12x dx. Thus, our new integral is 4 times 6x squared minus 5 to the third power of du. To ease the difficulty that can arise with some of the more advanced antiderivatives, which is something I'm probably going to have to incorporate myself, let's substitute 6x squared minus 5 with u, as we know that 6x squared minus 5 equals u. Thus, we now have that the integral that we now have the integral of 4u cubed du we can now apply the reverse power rule to 4 something cubed 4x cubed 4u cubed where we get u to the fourth power and now we can substitute u with 6x squared minus 5 and thus the indefinite integral of 4 times 6x squared minus 5 cubed times 12x dx equals 6x squared minus 5 to the fourth power plus c, forget not the constant. If we wanted to check our work, we could simply apply the chain rule, where we get that the derivative with respect to x of 6x squared minus 5 to the fourth power equals 48x times 6x squared minus 5 to the third power. And of course, the answer was simplified from 12x times 4 to 48x. So it's still the same answer, it's just simplified. I specifically did not simplify it so that we could kind of see what was happening but in many cases it will not be 
like that. In many cases, you'll have to kind of decipher it yourself. But it's still it's still a good reference for, especially if you don't know it yet. The first rugged definition of the definite integral is described by the Riemann integral and thus the Riemann sum, which many calculus students are told to find in lessons preceding algebraic integral calculus. Riemann defined the definite integral under a defined interval as akin to finding the accumulated area of an infinite number of rectangles or shapes in general, under in the case of a function whose curve is above the x-axis, the curve to the x-axis, and over in the case of a function whose curve is below the x-axis, the curve to the x-axis. The formal notation for the Riemann integral is the integral in the, between a and b, where the lower limit is a and the upper limit is b, of f of x dx. Let's say we had to evaluate the area under the curve of f of x equals x squared plus x under the interval 1 to 5 included. It's a closed interval. Evaluating this area is the same as taking the definite integral of f of x equals x squared plus x under that same interval. Thus, the integral between 1 and 5 of x squared plus x, that's, it's basically the integral between 1 and 5 of x squared plus x dx. If we apply the reverse power rule, we get that the antiderivative of f of x equals x cubed over 3 plus x squared over 2. Now this is not a, this is not technically a, an indefinite integral, so we don't necessarily have to add the arbitrary constant c. Now in some cases you may have to, I, I could foresee having to add the, that constant if they were to give you a specific bound, if they were to give you a specific like point on the graph, you would have to follow it essentially. And if you were supposed to follow it, if, you're, if you have to follow that point on the graph, you would have to apply c in that situation. But that's different. We're not going to apply it here. Now, if we apply this to the interval, we get 1 25th over 3, 1 25 over 3, plus 25 over 2, minus 1 third plus 1 half, which is simplifiable to 325 over 6 minus 5 over 6, or 320 over 6. Thus, the definite integral from 1 to 5 of x squared plus x dx equals... 320 over 6. So that means that the area under the curve of f of x between 1 and 6, including 1 and 6, is 320 over 6. Now we are subtracting the value of the antiderivative of x at 1 from the value of the antiderivative of x at 5. So if you saw that, saw it and it seemed a little abstract, that's why. That it was a little odd, of course, no question. Now, there are two fundamental theorems of calculus that relate the integral and the derivative to one another, and they're, they also relate, in general, the integral and the, the definite integral and the indefinite integral. The first fundamental theorem of calculus states that the antiderivative over a defined interval of some function, or the definite integral of a function, can be obtained by subtracting the general antiderivative obtained with an indefinite integral applied to the lower bound from the general antiderivative applied to the upper bound. This is applying, this is connecting the definite integral with the indefinite integral. The second fundamental theorem of calculus states that the integral of a function can be determined by finding its antiderivatives. This is essentially saying that f of x, capital F of x, equals the 
the definite integral from a to b of f of x dx, or that f prime of x, capital F prime of x, equals lower case f of x. Connecting integration with derivation, derivation, we could say that f of x, capital F of x, equals the indefinite integral, or antiderivative, of lowercase f of x, and thus capital F prime of x equals f of x. Now that, those are the fundamental theorems of calculus. That was probably the one major thing that I really did have to look up in this episode. Most of it I could do on my own because I'm basically just teaching things I already knew. And I haven't done that before on this podcast before. This is definitely new. The biggest thing I did with this podcast was to make sure with this, these, these two episodes were to make sure that I could gain a stronger understanding of calculus for I'm going to be skipping it next year. So I, I need to know what I'm doing, right? because I want to skip another grade of math, so, like, that is basically what I decided to do, and I need to make sure that I have a good understanding of it, so I thought might as well put it on the podcast, and I can give the very basics of calculus in a very short period of time, and of course, send the document over, because it's calculus, and calculus is not simple. This is basically a condensed version of about 550 to 2,000 minutes worth of videos, so... If you're having trouble understanding this, which I'm sure if you haven't had a, if you don't have a calculus background, you probably are. I would just say that go onto the doc, go onto Khan Academy, and do some research yourself because it'll it'll definitely help you. My goal here is to just inspire you to do more research. I can't give you all the research because for when when it comes down to it, I'm 16. I'm not going to be able to give you the information an expert or a professor will be able to give you. I will not be able to give you a fundamental and sophisticated conceptual understanding of something by myself. This is a 30-minute podcast. I, don't, I, I simply am trying to inspire you to learn yourself because it's important that we work to teach ourselves and learn more about the universe. And my goal in this is, of course, to inspire you guys. So... My goal in, in this episode, even, is to inspire you guys to go on Khan Academy and learn calculus. Because, again, I would highly recommend Khan Academy. I'm not sponsored by them, but I would love to be sponsored by them because I would proudly sponsor them. Because I have gained a lot from Khan Academy. They're a very, very good site, and I highly recommend them. But anyway, let's go to the last concept we will discuss. Certainly not the last concept that exists. In integration, like I'm doing parametric equations right now, for example, and I'll be doing infinite series tomorrow. So basically, it's not the end. There's definitely a lot more, but we're just going to do it for differential equations for now. A differential equation in simple terms is an equation that represents the derivatives of one or more functions. There exist three major types of differential equations, only one of which will be discussed today. The reason we will not explore partial or nonlinear differential equations is because they are both Calc 3 topics, meaning that I will not be able to explain them with math as I have throughout this chapter. So we're going to explain it with math, and we're just going to do an ordinary differential equation. An ordinary differential equation is a differential equation that contains an unknown function of a real or complex value of x and its function. We solve for the function that contains that derivative by finding an ordinary differential equation. The partial differential equation contains multiple variables, the multivariable function and their derivatives, which means that we have to solve for multiple variables 
functions, not one variable's function. A nonlinear differential equation solves for the function of an equation of a nonlinear function. So technically we're doing two, but technically, technically we're doing two, but nonlinear can get more advanced than just that. So technically we are doing two, but yes. So solving a differential equation is not actually too difficult, but it applies everything we've already learned in calculus. Suppose we have the separable separation of variables, differential equation, dy of dx, d, the derivative of y with respect to x equals 2x over 3y squared. Yes, this equation looks freaky, but it remains very simple. To solve for this differential equation, we need to match the derivative of each. We are going to pretend that dy dx, dy over dx is not a function, but rather, not a derivative operator, but rather a fraction variable with its term. So we're going to we need to match the derivative of each variable with its terms, with its same variable terms. This means that we will multiply away 3y squared from 2x over 3y squared and multiply dx into what is now 2x. And we get 3y squared dy equals 2x dx. You may ask, why do we do this? One may immediately see that the only thing in, this, in, this, in these two equalized equations, equivalent equations, the only thing that is not there is the indefinite integral, and that is what we will be doing next. We will be finding the indefinite integral of both sides, so we will be integrating both sides. Never thought you'd hear that in your life? Well, now you did. So it is clear that we must find the integral of 3y squared dy and the integral of 2x dx. Integrating both sides of the differential equation, we get y cubed equals x cubed plus c. You're always supposed to add a plus c to the right side, as in the independent output side of the equation. Now we must simplify to obtain the function we obtain from this differential equation. Now we must obtain the cube, now we must take the cubed root of the right side of the equation because we had y cubed equals x squared plus c. So doing so, we get y equals the cubed root of x squared plus c, where c is inside the cubed root. So, of course, c must be in the root of the equation, for we add it before simplifying anything. This is important. Thus, the answer to the differential equation of dy equals dy derivative of y with respect to x equals 2x over 3y squared is y equals the cubed root of x squared plus c. So differential equations apply everything in calculus to their solutions. We use the two fundamental branches of calculus, integral calculus and differential calculus. We get a differential equation, a derivative operated equation, and we use and we apply integration to obtain the original function in order to obtain their solutions. However, the mere existence of differential equations lay in question, for their solutions can often be unclear and not understood to exist at all. Yeah. But anyway, as is likely understood by the sheer size of this chapter and the sheer size of this episode, because it's at 30, it's at 46 minutes right now, I think, calculus is a massive branch of mathematics, but my favorite so far. I've really loved learning it to the point at which I do it outside of school. Characterized by numerous operations and even more applications. We have not yet even scratched the surface of the 20 mile in diameter iceberg that is calculus, even with a chapter like this, or a set of episodes like this. Thus, I encourage you all for the third time to go on Khan Academy, as I did, and go through all 
of the calculus. It is certainly not always easy. Typically, especially if you do not watch the videos, that was the biggest mistake I made as I finished up with AP Calc AB because I had to teach myself it, and it's not easy to teach yourself something when you don't watch the videos. But even so, it was invigorating and enlightening. Math never fails to excite if you give yourself, if you give it the chance to excite you. For it remains the fundamental language behind the mechanics of the universe. Anyway, thank you all for listening, and as always, have a good morning, afternoon, evening, and night. If you would like to support the podcast, please click the link in the description of this episode and subscribe, quote-unquote. But anyway, take care and stay curious.